This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This is Chapter 20 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we get an eye-opening look at a dark time in early American history from historian Kenneth C. Davis. Then, we hear from the woman who made it her mission to recover precious art stolen from the militarily occupied region in Cyprus. And in this week's Beach Read, it's a different take on the classic abduction story. Do you know how many former U.S. presidents were slave owners? I'll give you a second to think about it. Would it surprise you to learn the number is 13? In his book, In the Shadow of Liberty, author Kenneth C. Davis explores the lives of five slaves who were owned by four of those former presidents. He recently sat down with our Pat Farnack. It's a wonderful book. Uh, So many great stories, but also quite distressing, of course, because of what it's about. about. Well, I call it the hidden history of slavery, four presidents and five black lives, and it is the story of five people who were owned by, who were the legal property of four of our greatest presidents. It is a story that we leave out of the history books, certainly leave out of the school books, but it's too important a story as part of American history not to understand the role that slavery played in the lives of these presidents and in the early republic, and that's why I think it's really so important to understand it. How many presidents were there who had slaves? Thirteen presidents total uh, uh, were slaveholders or grew up in a slaveholding household. Of course, four of the first five presidents, five of the first seven, they were in office for 40 of the first, nearly first 50 years of the American presidency. And this is part of the story as well, that uh, slavery was part of their political power, in a sense, because if you go back to the old Constitutional Convention and the compromises, they counted enslaved people as three-fifths of a person for determining how many seats a state had in Congress and how many electors it had. So Virginia, although it was a smaller state than Pennsylvania or Massachusetts in total population, had more enslaved people, more electors. So, as I said, four of our first five presidents are slaveholders from Virginia. So uh, John Adams was not a slaveholder, nor was his son, John Quincy Adams. That's right. Those two are the only exceptions in that first generation of American presidents. And of course, beyond the presidents, most of the uh, speakers of the House of Representatives, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the leaders of the Senate were slaveholders. And this was what slave power represented. We think about it as a moral issue, and certainly it was, but was principally, and the reason it becomes such a crisis eventually. It was principally a a question of political and financial power. In the early 19th century, slavery was America's biggest business. We don't like to say that. Again, it's this dirty little secret. We like to have this picture of pride and patriotism about the American past, and it tends to brush away or gloss over some of the darker side. But we can't really understand our, our past, and if we don't understand the past, 
understand the present without really looking at this. Interestingly, you say facts are stubborn things. Well, John Adams said that, actually, <laughs> a, a long, long time ago, and, and I, I repeat it. It's one of my uh, favorite presidential quotes uh, uh, because it's true. Uh, we, we, we like to say, you know, we're in an era of we're talking about fake news and things that are, uh, that are distorted. Um, but if we want to really understand the past, we have to have facts. And these are facts. And one, pe- one thing I must say is that people say, oh, you're just trying to tr- tear down great men. And I, I don't think so. I'm, I'm very even-handed, I think, in this book in discussing men like Washington and Jefferson and Madison and not detracting from their extraordinary accomplishments. The country wouldn't exist without them, of course. But on the other hand, we have to balance the scales of history. And we can't look at Washington, the great man, the great general, the great president, without also looking at Washington, the slaveholder. It was so interesting how many contradictions these uh, guys had. Uh, Talking about George Washington, I was surprised that among his slaves was one Ona Judge, who you talk about at length, and she escaped. She ran away, and yet it took years before she – did she ever uh, leave his mind? He always tried to recapture her, try to get people to uh, take her into custody again and return her to Mount Vernon. Ona Judge is one of the five people I I profile in this book, and that's one of the important points here is that this is a book about people. Slavery was about real people who did real things. Uh, We often reduce it to words like emancipation and proclamations and amendments, but it's essentially a human story. Ona Judge was this 20-year-old woman who one day in 1796 walks out of the house of the most powerful man in America, President George Washington, in Philadelphia. He spent the next three years trying to track her down, using the full powers of the presidency to do so. Um, She had left because she was told she was going to be given away as a wedding gift to uh, Martha Washington's granddaughter. Again, it's the human side of this story, confronted with this, this notion that she would be given away to someone who did not have a great reputation. She decided that that this was her moment to look for freedom. And at that time, Philadelphia was interesting because it was one of the uh, the largest collections of free people of color in America at that time because Pennsylvania had ended slavery in 1780. Um, so this is the human side of the story. Ona Judge spent the rest of her life free in essence, although she was still legally and technically the property of the Washington and Custis family. And if she had been caught, she would have been taken back to uh, to, to bondage. Even though she married, she did not gain her freedom through marriage. That wasn't the way it worked. No, no. Her marriage had nothing to do with uh, with freedom. If you were born enslaved, you were enslaved for life uh, and the child of a slave. So Ona Judge, uh, born a slave herself, interesting, her father was an Englishman, uh, a tailor, an indentured servant. He actually sewed George Washington's uniform in 1775. I mean, again, the human side of the story, the connections are extraordinary. His name was Edward Judge, and he was a free person, but uh, Ona's mother was an enslaved woman, a seamstress, uh, Mrs. Washington's maid. So she was a slave for life, as her children were as well, even though their father, uh, a black man, was a free black man. They were the children of a slave. By law, they were enslaved themselves. So this is the horrific 
real human side of this story, this tremendous tragedy in American history, uh, and that's why I wanted to put a human face on it. One more thing I want to talk about before we get to Juneteenth, which is fascinating. Uh, During the American Revolution, the British actually offered uh, not only enslaved people but indentured servants uh, their freedom if they would leave their American owners and fight for the British. So this figured in – it was huge during the American Revolution. It was, a, it was a tremendous piece of the American Revolution, again, left out of most history books and certainly most school books. When George Washington is, uh, has the British trapped in Yorktown in October of 1781 in the final battle of the Revolution, there are uh, as many as six or 7,000 enslaved uh, fugitives who are with the British. They include 17 people from Washington's own plantation who had left when offered the chance to be free. They also include a young five-year-old boy named Isaac Granger. He later takes the name Jefferson. He's also featured in this book. Isaac Granger Jefferson is taken by the British to Yorktown and describes being there as Washington is bombarding. And then he later says, General Washington brought us back to Richmond and uh, Master Jefferson was mighty happy to see his people. Again, this human side and these connections between these people. um, We think of, you know, Jefferson in his big house in Monticello. A stone's throw from there is Mulberry Row, where the enslaved people had their cabins. Uh, Monticello is doing a very good job, by the way, of bringing that history to life. You can now see uh, what they call Hemings Cabin, uh, a recreation of the uh, slave quarters on Mulberry Row. So we're having a reckoning about this piece of our history at places like Mount Vernon and Monticello and Montpelier, James Madison's homes. And it's a very important part of our history to acknowledge. And Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, has that been... uh Laid to rest? Well, laid to rest in the sense that it's finally accepted. Most people think that this is a story that came out recently, that historians uncovered this relationship between Thomas Jefferson and a young woman who was 30 years younger than Thomas Jefferson, by the way. Um, There's no uh, question now that Jefferson was 99.9% the father of children by Sally Hemings. Um, She, by the way, was the half-sister, stay with me here a minute, the half-sister of Thomas Jefferson's wife who had died because they had the same father. There is even a suggestion that young Sally Hemings looked like Jefferson's dead wife, who he was very much in love with. There's no question about that. But again, it's, it's this intermixing of, of the, the owner and the enslaved, uh, this, this bizarre relationship, very human relationship that so often gets left out of the history books that I wanted to bring to light. Um, Isaac Jefferson... Isaac Granger Jefferson, who I write about in the book, actually knew Sally Hemings and offers one of the few descriptions of her, uh, hints at their relationship, but um, doesn't really confirm it. But now Monticello itself completely acknowledges that this is a fact that they are uh, one of those stubborn facts that they now completely accept after considerable controversy.
The book is fascinating, which brings us to what is Juneteenth? We'll end with that. Well, Juneteenth is an extraordinary holiday in American history that most people have never heard of. It marks the day in 1865, June 19th, 1865, that the Union Army arrives in Texas, the farthest, most westernmost part of uh, America at the time, to inform the people of the country that, uh, that slavery has ended. And so 250,000 African Americans enslaved in Texas learn on this day that they are free. And they immediately turned it into a day of jubilee, a day of celebration. And almost a year later, the idea of Juneteenth, taking the words June and 19th, became a holiday to celebrate freedom and emancipation. It was a very, very popular holiday in the African American community, uh, especially in the former Confederacy for a very long time, then sort of got forgotten as time went by. It was a day of not only thinking about the past and singing songs and enjoying it, but rodeos and barbecue and for some reason a, 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 a drink called red soda, um, uh, a combination of uh, sparkling, you know, sparkling water and, and something red to celebrate this day of emancipation. Uh, the date has come back. Texas now acknowledges it as a state holiday. Several other states do. So it's really a day that marks the the full realization of what the Declaration of Independence is all about, that all men are created and we all have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you see it ever becoming a national holiday? I would like to see it more fully recognized and acknowledged and understood by the the, um, general population. I don't see it being added to the the calendar, um, although I think it's, it's important that we understand what these holidays mean in our past. You know, for too long, we've had two histories, in a sense, one black, one white, separate but unequal. And I think it's time to really bring that together. The new museum in, uh, in Washington, D.C. does a wonderful job of that. But on the other hand, we just had this very disturbing moment where a noose was found in the National Museum of African American History and Culture, this chilling reminder of the deep racial scars in our past that we have to come to terms with it. Uh, in America today. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us and talking about your terrific book. It's called In the Shadow of Liberty, and it's by Kenneth C. Davis. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pat. It's a great pleasure. The Icon Hunter, a refugee's quest to reclaim her nation's stolen heritage, is based on the real-life story of Tasula Hadjitafi. Arjama Taxis caught up with her in the atrium of the Olympic Tower in Midtown Manhattan. For those of our listeners who are not aware of the historical events, in uh, 1974, um, the Turkish army invaded Cyprus and occupied the northern third. And uh, this is the story of what happened to the art, specifically the religious art, in many of the churches in the north of Cyprus. Correct, but I think there have been many books written about illicit art trafficking and what happens to looted antiquities in areas of conflict. I think what makes this story slightly different is because I myself am a refugee and an immigrant in Holland. Therefore, my sense of belonging, uh, my identity, perhaps is more tested than if I stayed back home. And therefore, this book shows the value that sacred antiquities have to communities who are affected by conflict and war, including refugees. 
So this is, um, there's a very haunting photo in your book of a, of a church in northern occupied Cyprus stripped of all its art and icons. Um, this, is a, this is a question of, of, of a culture being erased. Absolutely. I think that the cultural cleansing that took place in Cyprus was unprecedented until we started seeing what is happening today with extremists and ISIS. Uh, the problem with Cyprus is that we have 43 years of occupation, which means that there is systematic looting and no control or security on that part of the island. Also, Cyprus is, is a paradise for archaeologists. And if you dig anywhere under the sea or on earth, you will find antiquities, let alone the 500 churches which is fully decorated with frescoes, mosaics, and icons. So there's a lot of supply, but also a lot of uh, demand from connoisseurs of uh, antiquities. Uh, tell us the moment, uh, the moment when you changed from being refugee to being, uh, to being investigator, if you will. Yeah. Well, after the war, my family and I went to Limassol, which is a city on the coast, in the south part of the island. I finished the high school there, and then I boarded an airplane to go to the UK and work and study. So four years later, I came to the Netherlands in Holland. I thought for a year or two until I would go back to Famagusta. And there I began being an activist and telling the story of what happened to Cyprus because we didn't have an embassy at the time. And I became an honorary consul at the age of 27 because I was such a strong voice of the justice in Cyprus. And then, within a month, art dealers targeted me, including traffickers, trying to sell their information to me or via me to my government and the Church of Cyprus uh, or provoke me to buy the darts. So they wanted to mediate the Dutch or German or Turkish dealers to intermediate between the occupied area and then sell what was looted back to the government or the church on the other side. And that is when my Pandora box about war opened because up until that moment, the fear, the trauma of war, because I was a child of 14 when I endured the uh, invasion, I sort of had it in my subconscious, but seeing the devastating pictures of how churches were looted, turned into barns, it really, really upset me. And I felt I just have to stop it. So uh, what did you do next? Well, I realized that, uh, well, I brought Interpol first to the dealers, so they weren't very friendly. And the Dutch dealer said to me, I thought you were smarter than that. If you really want to get your looted antiquities, you have to trust me. So, and this game began. I understood that if I wanted to understand more about what goes on, I would have to spare one to find out what the others are doing. So I landed the listening ear to this uh, dealer who told me a lot about uh, uh, how the art trafficking takes place, who the players were. And uh, I was empowered by the government of Cyprus and their former archbishop. And I began tracking them down and uh, starting civil cases, criminal cases, and eventually 
a sting operation with the Bavarian police to expose all of them. What was the big break in your case? Well, there are many uh, repatriations from the late, late 1987 that I was involved with, including the four mosaics of Kanakaria that took place in Indianapolis. They were sold illegally and then repatriated via a court case. But um, I think what happened since I returned a lot of icons from Holland, Germany, uh, London. But I think what really made it were two cases. One, the Lance case, is four icons of the Antiphonites. And that was a very important case because the Church of Cyprus appointed a, we appointed a very good lawyer. And it was the first time that the 1954 De Hague Treaty was invoked for the protection of cultural heritage in times of war and armed conflict. So that case became very important for testing that international treaty. And then eventually I have lobbied to change the legislation in the Netherlands in relationship to that, in, in reference to the icons of Cyprus. So that was very important. But I think the one that really got the world's attention was the Munich operation. Because um, Cyprus, we had cases, civil cases all around the world. And the Archbishop and me thought, we have to do something more clever because we need to turn the tables on the dealers. So I made a collaboration with the dealer who approached me. Year one, I was uh, a consul, Michel von Rhein. And basically, I got him so far to pretend he was a buyer on my behalf and uh, frame his counterpart in Germany. So whilst we were buying back the looted art of Cyprus on behalf of a rich Cypriot, 75 undercover German police officers busted two apartments in Germany and they found 5,500 antiquities which were hidden behind walls, uh, double floors, double ceilings in these two small apartments so that's the story in the Icon Hunter in my book where you see um, the sting operation but also you see the trauma of, and the link between the person, the people of Cyprus. Every uh, good story has a personal change in it. How were you changed by, by this quest and, uh, and, and the ultimate outcome of it? Well, I think when I began repatriating the looted antiquities, it was anger and I wanted justice for what the Turks took from me and they took my youth they turned me into a second class citizen into a refugee and that hurts so every time I took an antiquity back I felt justice I got something back but as the time progressed it gave me deep satisfaction to see the smiles on my people in Cyprus how happy they were to see these icons come back and in this journey, I actually discovered who am I, what am I, and what do I stand for. So it actually helped me to make the pain of my inability to go back home, which I can't go home until today. Bringing this antiquities back home helped me deal with that a little bit better, you know? And tell me what these... Um Icons, what these antiquities mean to Cyprus, to you. And we use these icons to communicate with God. So 
they, they, they are precious. They are priceless for us. They don't have economic value. And to see them traded on the market is disrespect for my religious expression, is disrespect for, my, for religious freedoms, for our diversity. In a sense, uh, your job is not complete. Uh, the art, the icons have been returned to Cyprus, but they have not been returned to the north of Cyprus from where they came. Yeah, well, that's very true. And I would love to be able to go and restore them there with every Christian uh, Cypriot who would want to uh, participate. And the other way around, the Turkish Cypriots to go and restore their mosques if, if they or, or care for them um, in the other part of the island. But having said that, the way that the antiquities have been looted, uh, abused, there's no way we can put them in the north right now. Um, in fact, in the occupied area of Cyprus, if we want to go and pray, we need to apply for permission in Turkey. This is how bad the restriction of the religious freedoms is in Cyprus. And my job hasn't finished because I thought by bringing these antiquities home, I would be done But then, unfortunately, to my husband and my lovely children, I realized that, no, until I'm allowed to go back home, I will not stop. Because that circle is not round. I want to have the right to go home. I cannot accept that Mr. Erdogan or any Erdogan can have the right to shoot me if I cross the line in Famagusta to return home after 43 years. On that note, uh, let me say uh, thank you, uh, Tasula Hajitofi. This has been uh, an enlightening conversation. Uh, we appreciate your taking the time with us. Thank you very much, John, for having me, and thank you, America, for listening to me. The name of the book is The Icon Hunter, A Refugee's Quest to Reclaim Her Nation's Stolen Heritage by Tasula Hajitofi with Kathy Barrett. Again, thank you. Thank you very much. This week's Beach Read takes its title from an old fairy tale. And the Marsh King's daughter, author Karen Dion, transports us to Michigan's wilderness for a psychological thriller in a wild natural setting. This story takes place in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And this is a place where I actually lived for 30 years. I'm originally from the Detroit area. But back in the 1970s, my husband and I moved to the UP as part of the Back to the Land movement, you know, where a lot of young people who had grown up in the city felt the need to get closer to nature. So we moved up to the Upper Peninsula, to the Newberry area, with our six-week-old daughter. (laughs) We lived in a tent while we built a little cabin that summer, carried water from a stream, and sampled wild foods. So I had always, once I started writing novels, which wasn't immediately, it was about 20 years later, I wanted to set a book in the Upper Peninsula, but, you know, it had to be the right story. So that's where my love of nature comes from. You know, we lived so close to the land, and it it was just really fun and interesting there's a lot of living off the grid stuff in this book does a lot of that come from your firsthand experience of living in uh in up it does our circumstances were not nearly as extreme as what i depict in the book but um having for instance in my in my novel my character imagines what it must have been like for her mother to wash her diapers by hand in a bucket well (laughs) i've done that so i that part didn't take any imagination 
And I want to get back now to the the book and the story itself. So it's a, a different take on a classic abduction story. But instead of experiencing it through the victim, you approach it through the, the view of the child who's the product of this, you know, illegal, unnatural relationship. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by stories, true stories of people who overcome a less than perfect upbringing to make something out of themselves. And while the character of Helena basically came to me in the middle of the night when when the first sentences of the novel just appeared in my head, which is how inspiration works sometimes, I think it came from that source of uh, just an admiration for people who have, like I say, made something out of themselves despite not having a lot of resources, either um, material or emotional. So I think Helena's circumstances is really an extreme illustration of that, because for her first 12 years, she does not ever see another human being. So she has no moderating factor in her life. There's no teachers, there's no grandparents, no one to tell her, you know, make her question anything about her situation. And then, of course, she loves her life in the marsh. She's a little tomboy, and she adores her father. So to her, those early years are actually quite idyllic. And and she's really, you've really painted this very complex and also conflicted character between loving her father so much, but also as she's gotten older, now hating what he did to her mother. Probably all of us go through that to some extent, because when we are small, we don't see our parents' flaws, only when we get older. And I think a lot, depending on how much we're accepting of imperfect human nature, Uh, You know, some adults have real issues with their parents, even when they're in their 50s and 60s. And and I think, you know, we need to get past that. And so that's some of what Helena is dealing with, too, as an adult. And you mentioned that her character came to you, and that was before you had even established that this was sort of the story that you wanted to write, right? Exactly. It was it was really quite astonishing. The first few sentences, which are now the first sentences of the book, just appeared fully formed in my head. I woke up in the night with those sentences. I wasn't dreaming the character. And, you know, it was kind of funny because I was in that dream state where you can't get up and write the sentences down, but you know it's probably good and you should remember it. (laughs) (laughs) So I repeated it in my head several times, so I knew I would remember it in the morning. And and then, of course, the other half of that is, is often a middle-of-the-night middle idea. does not look quite so bright and shiny in the morning. But this one did. So I wrote down those sentences, and then I wrote several more paragraphs in Helena's voice, basically her telling who she is. And that's the first page of the novel. So it, it was really quite astonishing to me how the story began. So I happen to have your book here in front of me. So for those people who haven't picked it up yet, those lines that you're talking about, they go... If I told you my mother's name, you'd recognize it right away. My mother was famous, though she never wanted to be. Hers wasn't the kind of fame anyone would wish for. And that's amazing that 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 just came to you. It is. And I think other artists, you know, whether they're a, a painter or a musician, they understand about inspiration. Sometimes we have to force it, and sometimes it just comes from deep within us. Um, we're all the sum of what we've seen and heard and thought and experienced our whole life. So somehow that all just came together in those sentences. So your title is borrowed from a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. How does that dovetail with the story that you've written? Yeah, well, when I got after I got the idea for the character, and then I wrote the first page in which I gave the book a, a Marsh setting, 
the character in the following day, she kept talking to me, and I kept writing snippets in her voice, such as the scene where she imagines what it must have been like for her mother to give birth to her in the cabin, you know, with no one to help except the man who had kidnapped her. And so as these little snippets developed, I realized I needed to find a story for these this character. I just found her so interesting and engaging and, and saw such possibilities in the nuances of her relationships with her parents. So that's when I pulled my childhood fairy tale books off the shelf, because I've always been fascinated by fairy tales. Uh, love them, the darker the better. And I started paging through also because I know that some books, like for instance, A1 Ivy's The Snow Child, offers a modern take on a fairy tale. You know, it uses the fairy tale as the bones or the structure of, of the novel. So when I discovered the fairy tale, The Marsh King's Daughter, which I had obviously read as a child and long forgotten, um, I was just astonished at how well it fit. Because in the fairy tale, um, the Marsh King's daughter is the offspring of a beautiful Egyptian princess and the evil Marsh King who took her, which, of course, is, is my character, too. And in the fairy tale, she's the Marsh King's daughter is beautiful by day, but she has her father's wicked, wild temper whereas at night she takes on her mother's gentle nature in the form of a hideous frog. So the fairy tale is, is about the dual nature, the struggle to do what's right, and, and you know, the pull of the, of the bad side. So, again, this fits my character so well. It's one of Anderson's longer fairy tales. I actually only use about half the story, as I say, the backbone or the structure of the book. So now that you've written this you've finally been able to write this story that centers on this particular part of the country and your fondness for the outdoors really comes through in your writing. Are you going to use that setting more often? Or are you going to try something different uh, the next time you sit down and write? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I am working on another novel that is set in the Upper Peninsula. Um, I don't want it, of course, to be a repeat of The Marsh King's Daughter, but there will be a lot of nature in this book, too. And it will also be a, a domestic suspense or psychological suspense. Great. I can't wait. Thank you. So Karen Dion, the author of The Marsh King's Daughter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. And that's where we'll place our bookmark. If you're enjoying our podcast, let us know by emailing us at books at WCBS880.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.